Welcome to Syracuse University Talks Business, a collaborative podcast about the innovations, challenges, and opportunities in the modern business world and their impact on other industries. This podcast is produced by the Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University. I'm Jenna Lique. Today's conversation takes us abroad to Asia. The continent is home to some of the world's most economically powerful nations, and that affects how the United States engages with the business world. The audio used in this episode is from a webinar titled Business in Asia, Challenges and Opportunities, which was held virtually on November 17th. Like the rest of the world, the region was hit hard by COVID-19 and it had to adapt to the ever-changing landscape presented as a result. This talk looked at the Asian business market with the perspective of before, during, and after the pandemic and was moderated by Whitman Associate Dean for Global Initiatives, Q. Lee, and featured these panelists. Professor of Management at Whitman, Ravi Dodrakar, Professor of Practice in Korean and East Asian Affairs in the Maxwell School of Citizenship at Syracuse University, Kristen Patel, and Professor of Practice at McGill University in Canada, Bart Adis. Professor Dodrakar first introduces the region and the history needed to understand where Asia fits in the worldwide business understanding. Asia always has been the dominant economic uh, continent. And uh, right from, let's say, uh, the, the Roman era, uh, there always has been a trade surplus for Asia with respect to Western countries. And uh, this has sort of continued, this Asian uh, preeminence in terms of nominal GDP continued for quite, quite a many years, you know, all the way up to 1820s, okay? And it's only about in the 1870s that uh, you see that Europe and uh, its counterpart, the Western offshoots, uh, start becoming more economically dominant. So, so there's this notion that a divergence takes place. Uh, part of it is driven internally because of the enlightenment and the industrial revolution and so on and so forth. But the other part is uh, colonialism, which probably makes a big difference uh, to, to people from Asia. And you know, I like to sort of put in a quote by a very famous philosopher, George Santayana, who says, uh, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I think uh, Asians take this quite seriously because the colonial era had huge implications for how Asians react uh, to, to the world today. So it's only about 1870, uh, the, the Western or European dominance uh, of the economic system and global GDP uh, comes to aid. And that's that's around the time my grandfather was born. So you're not looking at lots of generations. In, in my case, it's only three generations, right? Uh, so so, so this, this sort of divergence keeps going on. And by the time I'm born in about uh, 1968, uh, Asia has hit rock bottom. And a classic sort of uh, book that captures this is uh, the famous Swedish economist, Gunnar Myrdal, wrote a book uh, called The uh, Asian... A dilemma, an inquiry into the poverty of nations, right? So this is a take on Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Uh, so, so by 1868, things look really bad. Uh, what happened since then is really amazing, uh, beginning with uh, Japan and then with, of course, uh, the other Eastern Asian countries and then China and India, uh, Asia has re-emerged. And it's in this context that a lot of things have changed. And this re-emergence has taken place rather quickly. Well, that was a few thousand years packed into just a couple of minutes, and Asia is now back toward the top and competitive. But with the ups and downs that inevitably come, this time it came globally by way of the COVID-19 pandemic. Notably, 
Asia was one of the most effective regions, as Professor Adis explains. Massive disruptions uh, in every in every aspect of, of life in every sector, and focusing on business and the economy. Uh, all of these countries in Asia were very hard hit. Uh, the Asian Development Bank estimated that some 80 million people in developing Asia uh, were thrust into uh, extreme poverty. Uh, small businesses, uh, entrepreneurs were, were put out of work uh, or struggled to uh, survive commercially. Uh, and of course, there has been some progress and actually the bounce back has been quite impressive, particularly with regard to exports. Uh, which surged past their pre-pandemic levels uh, uh, in the earlier part of this year, 2021. Uh, but these countries are still um, struggling with uh, what, what COVID has left them. And a part of that is um, you, you still have a lot of restrictions in place and you have low vaccination rates, particularly in, say, Central Asia, uh, some countries in uh, Southeast Asia, like Laos, Indonesia, and the Philippines, uh, some countries which seem to be doing very well at controlling spread of COVID, uh, Vietnam, uh, China, um, uh, Australia, there, were, there was a, a lot of international uh, uh, spotlight on these countries because they had, uh, it was perceived that they had done very well in controlling the virus, but then Delta came along and, and you had more outbreaks, which would lead to more uh, quarantines and their continuing travel restrictions. And uh, for some countries that uh, rely on tourism for a lot of their, their uh, hard currency earnings, um, they, their economies blasted out of the water. The restrictions on things like international travel seem to have had a major difference and changes the way the other nations interact with those in Asia. One prime example is the U.S. and China, which Professor Adis argues was already on shaky ground before the pandemic, and Professor Dodwicker backs that assertion up. We saw in COVID times uh, and before COVID times, the U.S.-China uh, trade relationship deteriorating, right? And so a lot of companies thinking uh, about the manufacturing and where they were going to get their, their inputs, what, uh, what, where they were going to import from, uh, started to look at the risk factor of, of having you know, factories or depending on factories in China. And so there was a diversification that continues to this day, uh, particularly to Southeast Asia, to countries like Vietnam, um, and, and Thailand, uh, Philippines to an extent, uh, and South Asia. Um, so to kind of spread the risk. So there hasn't been a wholesale departure from, from China uh, or, or an end to purchases. The US perception of uh, China is concerned. I believe it has changed significantly over the last two decades. So if you just go back to, uh, let's say 2000, uh, you can see that the U.S. Senate decided to vote 83 to 15 in favor of joining, uh, letting China join the World Trade Organization. There's a very positive perception of China at that point. And the hope was to bring China uh, into the bilateral, multilateral trading system, and eventually there might be some changes in China. Uh, clearly, that did not happen. Okay? So, so over time, uh, you can see the relationship that was meant to be collaborative uh, has taken very competitive tones. And Professor Patel breaks down why. China, China's policy, internal policies may be uh, stifling growth within China. You know, they're driving it from a government standpoint. But, you know, the fact that Ant Financial um, had the opportunity to bloom as one of the world's biggest financial companies, um, you know, it will be interesting to see if we can see that again in another in another company and then maybe in another sector. Um, probably not would be my guess. Um, and certainly 
Hong Kong is Hong Kong's ability to kind of drive and help facilitate the growth is being diminished diminished rapidly. Whereas when you look at you know the sectors that are growing and opportunities, and I think that's really a key here is the opportunities for growth. It really is you know less in China per se, other than you know they just have a a, a lot of people who who can drive drive their business growth. But the opportunity is certainly for innovation and development that's uh, not tied to government funds or government direction is going to be in ASEAN. And so, you know, particularly at what's stark when you, you're in Asia and then you come, you know, come back to the US is how some of these technologies, particularly that are being funded um, out of Singapore, they're probably going to transform how we do business and certainly how we operate. Um, and that's, you know, it's going to be a driver, not just within the region, but probably worldwide. The prediction from our experts is that the Asian Financial Center may move away from the superpower that is China and move to other parts of the continent like Singapore. This is in large part to the growth in the entertainment industry. Professor Patel and Adis see this, especially in the visual media space. In Korea, uh, how this has become um, a, a massive exporter of, of entertainment. Um, going back to the Simpsons, the popular TV program of years before, uh, mm. that, that involves uh, uh, Korean cre creative um, design and thinking. Uh, you have uh, Parasite, the Korean movie that was quite popular, and most recently Squid Game blew Netflix numbers uh, away as the most popular Netflix series ever. Um, and this is kind of you know, just tip of the iceberg stuff. You've got massive gaming going on in Asia. So these these add up to to not just Korea, but across Asia, billion, multi-billion dollar businesses. And you're finding more links between, say, Hollywood um, and Bollywood and, and other parts of Asia. You're seeing more Asian characters in films. So just the, this, the, inf, the soft cultural influence of different Asian countries, some more than others, in uh, American and Western cultures uh, and exports from Asia of, of, of talent, of creativity, of, uh, uh, of gaming and such, I think this is on the rise. Three or four years ago, uh, it was really hard to find shows or movies that were produced outside of you know, the big centers, even outside of Bollywood part. But now it, it's, you go online and you're able to watch a show that maybe was produced in the UAE or in um, the Philippines. And, you know, in, nowadays we're used to watching things with subtitles. That's a huge sea change in how we view, you know, the world views, a lot of the population views looking at um, entertainment. And for a lot of these countries, to Bart's point, you know, a lot of the, the, the work that's done on cartoons is done in Asia, in the Philippines, and South Korea. And so it provides opportunities or channels for growth in industries that, weren't, that didn't exist or existed and were very small, and now that they can go to scale. We've heard about the lows the pandemic brought and how these nations are working their way back. Now let's look to the future and what kind of challenges can present themselves with Professor Patel. We're already seeing it, particularly, for example, in Hong Kong. There was recently HSBC um, split its CEO into greater China and uh, Asia, and they put Asia in Singapore. And, the, and you know, if you use HSBC as a kind of a you know, bellwether, 
they're splitting their business lines. And you're seeing this in numerous com companies in Hong Kong where the risk, they're gonna have to wall off Hong Kong and greater China from the rest of Asia, which is costly actually, because they built their, their business model in Hong Kong to expand um, the synergies between China and the rest of Asia. So, you know, Singapore ultimately, at least from what we've seen in the, in the last year or so, is the beneficiary of this greater investment, headquarters being moved, you know, at least in the financial sector, their Deutsche Bank, HSBC, and numerous other ones are now, their operations are moving out of Hong Kong to, to Singapore. China has been a focal point since it ranks within the top three in GDP internationally. Professor Adis explains how the country's stability will affect how the financial market looks in the future. We're seeing uh, after an initial surge of the Chinese economy after um, recovering a bit from the pandemic, it's slowed down a little bit. So it's still growing, but not um, not as, uh, as fast as was foreseen earlier this year. And this matters to the rest of the world. China is a leading engine of growth and helping us uh, you know, carry through into 2022 and beyond and get through um, the, the remnants of this pandemic. Uh, it's when they're, when they're dealing with a, a variety of messes and also undertaking some moves uh, like crackdown on, on tech, even when it, it, it costs the Chinese economy, um, it, it's, it's making people a little bit nervous. Everything comes back to how the world recover from the pandemic. And in Asia, it seems like China could hold the solution if another nation doesn't step up and overtake China's role as the regional giant. Thank you to our guests for your expertise and time. This has been Syracuse University Talks Business. I'm Jenna Lique. Talk to you next time.